at the beginning of this second week of Lent, we went up the mountain of the Transfiguration. And what sticks in our, remains in our minds, of course, is that brilliant vision of glory shining on the face of Jesus. But at the end of the Gospel on Sunday, there was this curious uh, detail where Jesus says, don't tell anybody about the vision until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And then the Gospel at the end says, and they, so they kept it among themselves, but they kept questioning, what does is, what is rising from the dead mean? And so we don't think about that because we know Jesus rose from the dead on the third day and we believe in the resurrection. It's the very heart of our faith. But what does it mean? What does rising from the dead mean? And as they were talking among themselves, Peter, James, and John, they were probably wondering, is he talking about something symbolic? Is this a parable? Or is he talking about some kind of a miracle? Or what, what, what is it? What is it? And what does a dead person even experience? I mean, when you're dead, there's nothing else. And what, what happens after that? So there's a lot of things that are very mysterious. The reason I bring this up is because the, the Lord is revealing to us mysteries that are not that easy for us to understand. And we're not in, always in the right disposition to understand them anyway. One of, the, one of the methods he uses to get past our dullness and our, also our resistance is the parables. And you might notice that in the later part of the second week of Lent, we get a series of great, great parables. Yesterday we had the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Today the parable of the wicked tenants in the vineyard. And then tomorrow the, the best parable of all will be the parable of the prodigal son. These parables, as we know, uh, uh, engage us in a way that simply explaining things doesn't. It, it, they attract us because they're stories, but then they also have a way of, of uh, planting truth in us. So yesterday, for example, the parable of the, of, the, uh, of the rich man and Lazarus, that was primarily an instruction on love of neighbor, right? Primarily. The, the, the failure of the rich man was that he did not love Lazarus as he should have, and it led to his condemnation. Today's parable about the tenants is primarily about love of God or our responsibility to God. We're all tenants, and the owner of the vineyard has a right to his share. There's also a little bit about love of neighbor because... Uh, the way the tenants treat the servants. But then in tomorrow's parable, it's both love of God and love of neighbor because that older son, as we'll, we'll see, see tomorrow, he has, he has a, a, a problem in his relationship with the father and he also has a problem in his relationship with his brother. So that's why tomorrow's parable is really the masterpiece. But for now, let's just look at this one. Uh, the parable of the wicked tenants one thing we remember, actually, when we ponder this parable is this is a, a creative way of describing how evil works in us, how, how we fall into these evil ways of thinking and how it distorts our relationship with God. But we shouldn't think that this is just fiction, as, a, as if 
as if fiction doesn't convey truth to us. If you, if you think that this is just a story, well, then go to the first reading, and you see this story of Joseph, the Old Testament Joseph, and the, uh, the, all the sons of, of Jacob. And we realize, and that's not a fictional story, that's, that's a historical story. In other words, we, we really can be this wicked. The, the human family does have this tendency to not only misunderstand and distort, but to, but to really be malicious. The brothers of Joseph, his own brothers, they are intent on killing him. And they don't kill him because his older brothers, a couple of them, intervene, you know, just throw in the cistern, maybe we can do something. And eventually they just sell him into slavery so that they won't have blood guilt on their hands. So it's not because of any love for Joseph. It's because they don't want to be guilty. And maybe they wanted the money. Who knows? So you see this. It's possible for us to be that wicked. In fact, it goes all the way back when you talk about hatred between brothers. It goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. Cain killed his brother, Abel. That's part of what the human condition involves, our fallen condition. Okay, let's go back to the parable here. Uh, the, the tenants start out fine. They, they, they don't mind receiving everything for a fruitful harvest because the landowner sets up everything for them. The vineyard, the hedge, the wine press, the tower, and the freedom to take care of the place. I mean, the, the landowner is not watching over them very closely. He goes off on a journey. He entrusts the vineyard to the tenants. And this is a sign to us of God entrusting to us responsibility for ourselves and for the world. He's not, he is watching over us. It's not like God is away on a journey, but he is leaving us with a certain free space to, to either do it right or not. We talked about that yesterday, the two ways. So there's a right way to live and there's a wrong way. Anyway, these tenants uh, take the advantage and then very quickly take it to themselves. They refuse to give anything to the landowner and they refuse to treat the landowner's servants with respect. In fact, they're very disrespectful. They stone them, they beat them, they kill them. And you know the story. They get worse and worse until finally the son comes to give them another opportunity to do it right and they kill the son. It's a, it's a really ugly story. And then uh, Jesus asks at the end of the parable, well, wh what do you think, what do you think will happen to those tenants? And the answer is, well, they're gonna be put to death, and they should be. He will put those wretched men to a wretched death and that's justice. But then Jesus, he, he does uphold justice, but he doesn't say, you Pharisees, I'm going to put you to a wretched death. He says something a little bit milder. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people who will produce its fruit. See, it's not a dead end. Even for these 
the, the target of the parable, the target is the, is the chief priests and the elders. He, he, he doesn't impose absolute justice and you're bad people and you're going to be killed. He, he even leaves open a possibility that if you start producing fruit, well, then the kingdom can be given to you. The key is not the tenants, whether they're good or bad, and they're obviously bad, but the key is the decision of the landowner. And, and, and it's, it's captured in this very strange symbol. The stone, which the builders rejected, has become the cornerstone. So the builders have messed up the plan. But God has decided to establish a new, a new system, a new a cornerstone. is right the beginning of a whole new temple. By the Lord has this been done. The Lord is the one who's going to take care of this problem. He, he doesn't have to just kill everybody off. Now, the difficulty with these two readings is that they don't quite make, well, they don't make obvious to us the real answer here. You see, it's easy to say, don't be like those wicked tenants. Don't be like those brothers of Joseph. Don't be bad people. I'm sure, I, and I'm telling you that. <laughs> but you already know that, and we all know that. The difficulty is we, we, we don't have the power to free ourselves from that tendency. We have a fallen nature, all the way back to Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve. And we might not be out, you know, killing people in the streets, but we have this tendency to take care of ourselves first. And it, and it, it doesn't just go away because we decide to be good people. This is why we need Lent. If we, were just, if we could just decide to be good people, we wouldn't need Lent. But we do need Lent because we, that decision doesn't have any force. We need a power that's greater than our own to, to save us. And this is implied in the stories, but not, as I say, not brought out that obviously. In the case of Joseph, you know what happens. The very one who is the victim of evil becomes the key to the salvation of the, of the oppressors. And this is, by the Lord has this been done. In other words, God is the one who, who takes this, this corrupted condition and actually uses it to bring about something better. The, the marvel of, of God and the marvel of grace at work. Same with this, uh, this parable here. It, it, we know that in the parable, the son is, is, is uh, seized and and dragged out of the vineyard and killed. Now, in the parable, he doesn't rise again and save the very people that killed him. <laughs> but we know this, is a, this points toward what we're going to celebrate in four weeks. Four weeks from today? Yeah. Good Friday, four weeks from today. We're going to celebrate that, that death of the sun, which is the worst possible thing that the tenants could do, the worst possible thing that we could do, becomes, by the marvel of God's grace, the key to our overcoming the evil that we that we that, that has trapped us. That's why I turn to this psalm. Remember the marvels the Lord has done. Remember the marvels the Lord has done. It was marvelous what happened in the Joseph story. Amazing that Joseph ends up being the savior of his own brothers who wanted to kill him. But the greater marvel by far is the marvel of Jesus' death, atoning for our sins, setting us free, making it possible for us to have eternal life. 
to remember the marvels the Lord has done, especially when you're grappling with the sin condition, and we all are. That's Lent. That's Lent. Prayer, fasting, almsgiving. Today's a day of abstinence, the Friday of Lent, a day of penance, and we realize it's not that easy to change. But it is possible because of the marvels the Lord has done. So with hope in the Lord's grace, in the, in the Lord's power to bring good even out of evil, we go forward in our Lenten journey.